Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Getting to Better Together, the mini-series of podcasts that are sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And before I go any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gabi Gabi people, and pay my respects to them, to their elders, past, present and emergent. It's a very uh, appropriate guest that I, uh, I have today, given that we are from the University of the Sunshine Coast. And uh, I have the privilege of talking with Robert Elliott, who was one of the very first uh, on site, as it were. Currently is the, um, the Pro Vice Chancellor for Internationalization and Quality, uh, but has the history of literally seeing this place from the get-go. Welcome, Robert. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Good to know. I want to start with um, a broad question about what you hold as the, the role of universities in society. I think the answer to that is very complicated and has a number of different elements. I think one thing that's often lost sight of is that, in my view at least, universities are devices for generating knowledge and for driving social progress. I think that's really important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. They do other useful things as well. So for example, they create opportunities for social mobility, for people to move upwardly, so to speak, uh, through various social strata. They train people to work in various professions, including new professions. I think one problem in the way that universities are currently conceived of is that they're seen as entirely instrumental, just things that are useful for reasons to do with producing graduates who can work in business industry or as individual entrepreneurs or whatever. But I think it's always important to remind people that uh, universities historically and hopefully into the future have been places where new knowledge has been developed where new ideas have been debated and promulgated and where ignorance has been dispelled. Though it's important to say that uh, at various points in time, universities have been in fact bastions of ignorance, but I think all things considered, they're really great in instruments for driving social progress and maybe getting people universally to the point where uh, we are genuinely getting better together. The, um, was there a turning point in, in, in our lifetime? I mean, you and I are roughly the same age, mm. um, with roughly um, similar experiences, I guess. Was, was there a specific turning point where universities, as it were, swerved away from that general mission? Probably uh, there is a broad turning point. I think maybe it happened gradually over maybe a decade or two decades. And I would say somewhere between the mid-60s and the mid to late 70s. Mm -hmm. And I think that change was related to a very good thing that was going on. There was a genuine attempt by government in Australia to increase access to higher education. And I think what happened in parallel to that extremely good 
social ambition was that universities became increasingly seen as instrumentally valuable rather than valuable on account of the fact that they produced knowledge and understanding. So they became, um, they came to be seen as instruments for upward social mobility, which is a good thing. Uh, they came to be seen as instruments for enabling people to accumulate more wealth through training to work in certain professions, industries, businesses, and that's good as well. Uh, but I think along the way, that focus that you referred to was perhaps not entirely lost, but maybe diminished or a bit overwhelmed by the, the social utility of universities. Mm. With that, was there a loss of, of the critical facility of universities in society? I mean, did they tend to become more malleable, more employment-oriented, job-ready, rather than... A, I mean, there's a tension, isn't there, between being part of society and at the same time being a critic of society? I think that's a hard question to answer definitively. I think even before the shift that we've referred to began to happen, even though universities focused on the development of knowledge and engaged in reflection and analysis and critique, I think very often that was an insular activity, happened within the university. Yeah and didn't spill over into the wider society. Obviously, there are figures, Bertrand Russell, for example, who were part of the academy, uh, whose academic interests resulted in a very, very public profile and concerted efforts to have an impact on the politics of the day and social attitudes and the like. Right. But I think very much um, that intellectual activity was insular. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think, of course, of that wonderful phrase, the ivory tower. Mm. <laughs> another criticism uh, or another uh, descriptor, I guess, of, of universities was the silo mm. uh, and the mini silos within it. Yes, I know them all too well. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean to you when, when you know, I mean, it, the sense that I have, I'm an agricultural scientist, and the sense that, that I have of silos was that mini silos, that within agriculture there are little agronomists here and economists here and sociologists there. But you're a philosopher. What would it mean to you as a philosopher? I don't know that I know the answer to that question, but I can tell you what it means to me as a person who's been involved in university management. And it's worth saying that when I came to USC at the end of 1995, I had been very active as an academic philosopher at the University of New England and for the first few years at USC I continued that activity but I slowly drifted into a full-time role as an academic manager or a university manager and I guess somewhere in the mid-2000s I started to lose touch with academic philosophy. But I became increasingly well acquainted with those silos that you're referring to. When I came to USC, there was a lot of optimism about the kind of u university that USC might become. And uh, one bit of that optimistic view was that all of the parts of the university 
would be open and transparent to one another and would work collaboratively and productively with one another to achieve the university's strategic ambitions. So that's a great idea, but the reality was a little bit different. As the university grew in size, it started to come compartmentalise. People stopped being as open and transparent as they initially were. Organisational areas within the university didn't work as collaboratively and cooperatively as they initially worked. And I think that was just very much a function of the growing organisational complexity of the institution. I don't think USC is really any different to most big universities in Australia or indeed the world. So there are particular agendas within particular organisational areas of the institution that often conflict with the agendas of other organisational other organisational areas in the institution. And there can be a lot of kind of internal political strife, squabbling over resources, keeping secrets from other areas, lest that area steal your secret and capitalise on it at your expense. It's just very hard to break down those kinds mm. of um, insulating, isolating attitudes. Mm. There have been accusations over uh, recent decades that universities have become corporations. What are your reflections on that? This might be a a condemnation of myself, but I've had I've been inclined to think of the university as a business that um, does try to generate revenue in the way that a corporation might generate revenue. And somewhat jokingly, when people ask me what I did at USC uh, after I became the Pro Vice Chancellor International and Quality. I would say my job's to make money for the university. And there was a serious aspect to that jokey kind of comment. Uh, I was involved in USC's recruitment of fee-paying international students. And I imagine most people know that uh, revenue derived from fee-paying institutions has propped up Australian universities over the last couple of decades. Different universities to different degrees. Uh, USC is not and has not been as dependent on international student fee revenue as some other universities, but it's nevertheless been a fairly big contributor to the university's operating budget. And in our last real year of international student recruitment pre-COVID, which was 2019, uh, our international student fees contributed about 18% of the university's operating budget, so quite significant but a much lower percentage than the median across Australia and much, much lower than some universities that were very, very heavily invested in international student recruitment. So, in a sense, I think it's true that universities have become a bit like corporations. They've become... Well, I wonder whether they ever were. I was going to say they've become less democratic institutions than they used to be. You mentioned earlier that you were an elected dean. Uh, That kind of position has disappeared from all Australian universities Mm -hmm. now. It still persists in some parts of Europe, but universities have kind of shifted in terms of the culture from an academic community, maybe not completely, but from an academic community where academics are more or less equals to a, uh, a managerial style 
organisation. I think that's certainly a transformation that universities have undergone. Is it inevitable? No, I don't think it's inevitable. Uh, I think there are universities around the world that are different. Maybe in the Australian context, it's inevitable. But I think there are universities, as I said, in, in Europe that um, still have a lot of the, the old ethos, so to speak. Mm. Uh, I think there are probably private institutions in the United States, small liberal arts colleges that are a bit like that still. So I don't think it's inevitable. The, um, the role of a, of a pro-vice-chancellor in terms of internationalism and internationalisation must extend beyond simply getting foreign students. It does, and if people have got a spare moment, they could go to the USC website and into the search engine they could type internationalisation guidelines and a little document will come up which is an answer to the question that you've asked. <laughs> so there's certainly a lot more to internationalisation than just recruiting fee-paying students. Though I have to say for most universities that's probably the core of it. And it's also worth saying that the revenue that's derived from those students is often invested in other aspects of internationalisation. So USC, for example, has been very keen to get its own students to spend time abroad studying. And that's had varying degrees of success over time. One thing we've discovered is that short-term overseas programs are much more attractive to students than full semester programs. And USC has been very active and successful in getting smaller groups of students to go overseas for one, two, three or four weeks. As uh, groups? As groups. International research collaboration is also incredibly important. That's very hard to drive from the top down. So one thing that uh, internationalisation at USC involved is developing partnerships, building networks of overseas universities from whom we might recruit fee-paying students, but importantly, uh, with which we might build or cause to be built research collaboration. So I'll give you an example. One of our first, maybe it was our first, I think it was our second partner university in Germany, is the German Sports University. And um, we had an academic from USC visit the German Sports University in the very early days of the relationship. That uh, visit was supported by the international office and it was funded partly out of the revenue received from international fee-paying students. Our initial interest in that particular German institution was as a source of fee-paying students. But as a consequence of our academic visiting that institution and discovering that he had research interests in common with academics there, a program of research developed, this would have been in the mid-2000s, which is still being played out today. And um, there's a wonderful video that I have seen. I don't know what's become of it. It's probably drifting around somewhere in the uh, internet world. And um, it shows an experiment that took place as part of this international research collaboration. And the experiment was, experiment was funded by the European Space Agency and it enabled 
a group of researchers from various European universities, including the German Sports University, and a researcher or two from USC, to have the wonderful experience of flying on something that became known as the Vomit Comet. <laughs> so it was an old um, Boeing aircraft mm -hmm. that was based in Bordeaux in France, and it did a parabolic flight which created a, a gravity-free environment for maybe five or six or seven seconds. Right. And uh, one impact of that was that it caused people to throw up, but it also meant that they could conduct various physiological experiments on what happens to humans when they're in a gravity-free right. zone. So that research is still continuing today, and uh, it's a good example of a number of research collaborations that USC has managed to develop over time. So working with researchers from around the world is an incredibly part, important part of internationalization. Mm. And so too is uh, encouraging academic staff mobility between USC and its partners around the world. It's really great to get our academics to spend time at an overseas university, uh, learning new things, getting new ideas, seeing how what we do is done differently in other parts of the world and bringing that input back to USC to enrich our curriculum. It's also great to get academics from our partner universities to come to USC and to participate in the delivery of our programs and courses. That's another wonderful way of enriching our curriculum. And it kind of supplements our efforts in getting our students abroad. Realistically, we're never going to be able to get a large percentage of our students to spend time studying abroad, even on a short-term program. So one way of supplementing the outbound flow of students is to bring the world to USC. Mm -hmm. One way of doing that is getting academics from our partner universities to come to USC. The, um, the impact of uh, COVID-19 on universities has been pretty dramatic, isn't it, in terms of having to change the way we do things. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, the old notion of, of a lecture hall and, and tutorials and uh, interpersonal exchanges and so on uh, have been extraordinarily difficult. Where, where do we go next? I don't know that I've got a universal answer to that question, but I can say a couple of things about the impact of COVID on USC in relation to the issue that you've raised. USC pre-COVID had a commitment to face-to-face -to -face teaching. So that was part of the USC philosophy. And there was a deliberate decision taken not to develop too much in the way of online teaching. So maybe in certain niche areas we would do that. But across the board, we wanted to remain a face-to-face -face institution where students came to lectures, came to tutorials, interacted directly with academic staff, the people who taught them. COVID forced us to change that approach very, very rapidly. And one of the amazing things was how quickly we were able to do it. So in first semester 2020, we realised that we were going to have to deliver our courses and programs as much as possible in some kind of online mode. And in the middle of that first semester, 2020, we paused teaching for a week 
and we used that week to gear up for a somewhat amateurish but not too abysmal online uh, form of teaching. So for example, all of our tutorials were shifted to Zoom tutorials mm. and we looked at alternative ways of delivering the material that used to be delivered in lectures. And we got, a, we got ourselves to a decent point in a very, very short period of time. But the lesson that we learnt from it is that maybe that earlier decision to focus on face-to-face -face delivery wasn't the right decision to have made. Uh, important to retain face-to-face -face experiences for our students where that's possible. But I think what we learnt is that it's also important to have a delivery style that suits students who do not want to come to campus or do not want to always come to campus and a delivery style that enables the institution to cope with the kind of interesting circumstances that COVID created. And we have a new Vice-Chancellor for whom the development of online delivery is an important part of the overall university project. And online materials, of course, can be used to really improve and enrich the face-to-face -face experience. So I don't think these two things should be seen as mutually exclusive. Right. They can work cooperatively together to produce a much better overall experience for the multitude of different types of students that we have. So, in, yeah, in essence, it's, um, it's not going back to the old normal, it's creating a new normal. Mm -hmm. Robert, it's been a delight talking with you. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming. And My pleasure. Um, I've learned a lot more about University of Sunshine Coast uh, with that. Good to know. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Just before I sign off, um, just to let you know that um, you can follow us on uh, Spotify and on Twitter, and you can subscribe on the Apple podcast, Getting to Better Together. And we would welcome any comments that you would like to post uh, through that medium. Uh, because as we said right at the beginning, 12 episodes ago now, we really want to make this interactive. We want to illustrate this as an engagement function of a university to engage with the pressing issues of the day and not just be seen as the sources of expert knowledge. So goodbye and thank you for listening.